We're in Exodus, and today we're reading the part where Moses leaves and runs to the far country. And so I was just, in my mind, was suddenly like trying to find correlations between the two accounts. Um, but I wanted to, today we're, we're specifically uh, talking about the life of Moses out of Exodus. And specifically what I want to say today in looking at these two lives, uh, at the lives of, there's two stories that we're looking at. There's the account, the story arc of Moses and his life. And then there's the story arc of Israel and their, and what they represent. And, and when we are looking at these two accounts, we find ourselves seeing images of our faith illustrated by both of these lives. So we have the life of Israel as a body uh, and we see ourselves reflected in them, and we also see ourselves somewhat in the life of Moses. So there's just the, the reality of that there is a life, uh, and anytime we have life, a person, there's something we can learn from that person, and there is something that in the illustrations that God builds into his interactions with his people that we can learn. So that today I think the heart of what I'm wanting to share is this simple truth, which most of us know, but we don't always realize. And it's the truth that leaving Egypt is not the same as entering the promised land. And that's what I want to look at because leaving Egypt, we, we can spend a lot of time speaking about Egypt, speaking about where we came from, how we used to be in bondage, all of those things but leaving Egypt is not quite the same as actually entering the promised land. And we see that in the life of Moses. Let's read from uh, Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, we have the first half is the account of Moses being born and taken to the house of Pharaoh's daughter. And then in verse 11, we pick up with his life as an adult. So we have very small bits of Moses' life, really, when you stop and think about it, what we know about him. Corey, are you excited? <laughs> uh, she's grinning at me from over there. That's awesome, Corey. Uh, so Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, so he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to, the, to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to royal their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have not, that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. And then it goes into the account of Moses and the burning bush. But we have this little phrase in the process of time. So we're talking about decades of time. We're talking about a long time that Moses is. And I have, a, I have the map here, Reagan, if we can look at the map uh, of where he goes. Because he goes to Midian, and I never stopped to think about this, but it, it's a... If you look, Egypt is way up there in the, 
in the, they're in the Nile Delta. And so they're up there probably on the, if you're looking at the Red Sea, the two little fingers coming up from the Red Sea, you have the two, uh, the one on the left is the one that right above there somewhere is most likely where the Hebrews were. So when he went out to find his, his, his fellow people, he went out somewhere over in that part of the country, unless they were working elsewhere, because there is um, over close to the Nile, there is a, um, canal over there somewhere that's still called Joseph's Canal. Um, and so there's, so there's a, that's where he came from, but instead of then just going out into the wilderness across the brook of Egypt or something, he traveled all the way over, and on this map, it's all the way in the lower right-hand corner is Midian. So any, that, that second finger of the Red Sea that points up toward the Dead Sea, that on this side, on the right-hand side, that's where Midian is. This is and, the, and the Midianites are also descendants of Abraham. So, so if you go to the land of Midian, you have to go a long ways. You're crossing over to the other side of the Sinai Peninsula. Now this particular map, uh, there are two attempts being made to, dis- to figure out where exactly the Red Sea crossing was. And so this shows the Red Sea crossing as being halfway down here on the, on the eastern finger of the Red Sea. Um, and, and there's been some archaeology and stuff there. So there's two, when you go look on the internet, you'll find a lot of for the other one. Um, and sometimes they will literally go up, all the way up on the left-hand side, up in that little bitty spot where uh, I think it's the Suez Canal or something's there now. And they, they, they say that was where the Red Sea crossing was. And you think, well, if it was there, why didn't they just step across? And, and so why did it take a miracle? And so it, when we're looking at this from a historical perspective and archeological perspective, it has to make some sense. So if you look at, I don't have the trade routes here, but basically from Egypt, there's a trade route that kind of angles up through the promised land. And there's a trade route that goes just, it just starts going east and it angles down a little bit because it's gonna end up going down to Baghdad and such. And so there's a, there were several trade routes that were there. What it looks like is when Moses left, he just walked for quite a few days just following one of the roads that he was on. And so it looks like he would have been on like the trade route to Baghdad in, in modern terms. And then he was headed just, he was headed east just to get away. And as he's going, eventually he finds himself in Midian. He finds a well, he sits down next to it. And here comes, uh, the, here come the daughters of Jethro. Now we have the name Jethro and Royal that we'll see interchangeably used for this guy. And I was trying to find out why and what, it, what that means. And I don't have a good answer yet. Um, because none of my commentaries or Google readily gave me an answer. So I, I will have to see if there's a deeper answer that I haven't found yet why, why that is, um, that we use the same, that, that those two names. So he finds himself in the land of Midian. And as he's over there in Midian, time passes, he gets married, he has children, uh, a child at least here. Later we see that he has two sons. And so we, we see Moses... In a, in a very awkward position for being a, if you want to say royalty in Egypt, he's hiding out and taking care of sheep. And there are other spurious documents out there um, that say that, oh, and, and they, they appear to be written in the, in the medieval time period um, where they, they try to set up Moses, where he goes and fights the wars of Midian for them and becomes this amazing warrior that's able to just conquer anybody and anything. And he gets all this experience and all the kings of the land know him. And it's just like he gets all this honor and then suddenly he's called from that to have to go back and get the children of Israel out, which when I read through it, I knew it was spurious when I started reading it. And it's one of the books of Jasher. Uh, there's like three or four different books of Jasher. And some of them are so obviously made up. Um, and, and others you go like, hmm, I wonder. And, and so we, we have, because of the fact that the books of Enoch at one point had some of the books of Jasher mixed in with them, there is this, this question of that part of it might, we might actually have something historical there, but they're not, nobody included them in their scriptures. So even I don't believe the Eastern Orthodox actually in, included any of these because they came so much later. So, so there's, there's this huge question within Christianity. What did Moses do all those years? Here it just says he was a shepherd. Was he truly just a shepherd? Did he get, and so, so for some people looking at the life of Moses, they think it is so extreme that he would be equipped to lead that many people 
and to do all of this later if he hadn't had some experience first. And so that's why I think some of the books of Jasher that are spurious were trying to figure out well, how do we give him more experience? How do we make him more than what he was? Because he obviously can't do this. Like this is ridiculous to think that you go from being a shepherd to leading all of this huge throng of people out of Egypt. And so I want to just look at that fact for a moment and say, what is it about Moses in Egypt and Moses leaving Egypt? Because uh, I'm calling today's message just leaving Egypt. And, and, and there's something here in the, in the story arc of Moses. We have Moses as a child. He is set apart. He is special. And so for someone in our culture, we would say you're very gifted. You have a calling on your life. You're very gifted. And then he gets privileged. Now he's growing up and he's been given all of this education on top of being set apart. So he's special and he's being trained well, but he is also a Hebrew. And so as he comes of age, doesn't say exactly how old he is here in this passage, but it says, as he as, as it comes to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren. So he goes out to his brothers, looks around, sees the Hebrews, sees what's going on, and there is a certain sense in his in, in what he does that makes you think that he has been thinking, I'm being trained and I'm being set apart, I'm going to deliver my people in some way. So when he sees an Egyptian going against one of his people, he goes and kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand, and assumes that that will take care of it. So if you think about the story arc, here we have the young, the young Moses, who is set apart and special, but he, he understands that he is actually connected with the, his brothers, so he goes out to the Hebrews, and he's there, but he still feels he is not the same as them. He is superior in some way. And so he thinks that if he takes this thing, this battle into his own hands, he thinks he can deliver them. He has to, because to kill someone means that you have to consider yourself above the law in some way. Because he is administering justice. He is not expecting to actually have to deal with this. And so when he, when it, he says, surely this thing is known the next day, he is kind of shocked and surprised that someone knows about this. Because in his mind, the guy who survives, the Hebrew would have said, guys, Moses is the man. And he would have been welcomed and, and lauded as the hero because he did this thing. And so as we look at the life of Moses, there's something very specific right here in this moment that I think is important for us to look at in our own faith. Because there is a, there is a time, and this can just simply be the simple statement that someone tells us that Jesus loves you. And we look at ourselves and, and this is like the lords of the earth. And we say, well, of course, Jesus loves us. We are the best people in the earth. And so we look at ourselves and we're like, of course we are. Uh, you know, it just makes sense that if there is a God, he would love us because just look at, just look at me. And so this, is, this seems almost to be what Moses is seeing as he's growing up in this privileged position is that he is not fully recognizing what God is after and who God really is. But he's, he has this, and so as we're looking at the story arc, at some point in our life, we feel like, I remember as a kid, first hearing about how God had chosen the Jews, as, as it was an Amish bishop preaching through a lot of these passages on a, either on a communion Sunday or, a, or an ordinance Sunday. And as he was preaching through that and he had, had chosen the people, I just sat there at probably eight years old, maybe nine years old, it was, it was still in Tennessee. And as I was, and I was thinking, I looked all around, I thought, you know what? we are his chosen people today. So obviously, I, I was like, I don't know who, what happened with all those Jews, but maybe we are the Jews, I don't know. But it's obvious that we are the special people of God. We are the special ones that God loves. Just look at us. We're Amish, can't you tell? And so I had this, this from birth, being a little bit set apart and being a little bit special made me assume that I was the stuff. And so this is what I feel that I'm looking at when I look at Moses, is that he sees himself as being the thing because he grew up in Pharaoh's daughter's house. He was set apart. Maybe some of the others of his generation were killed. Maybe he doesn't understand the impact of that. But he comes to that point in his life and he is doing something in his own strength. So he has a few things correct, but he has a whole bunch of things wrong. And so for part of him, he's looking at himself and saying, I am the deliverer of, of the Hebrews. Is that true? Well, actually, yes, it's a true statement. 
God is going to use this man to deliver the Hebrews from Egypt. Is he set apart? Well, yes, actually he is set apart. But is this the way he's set apart? No, there's supposed to be something different happening. And so when he discovers that his own sin is, has been found out, he flees, he runs away. And in Moses right now, we find this moment where there's something happening in the life of Moses. So let's go over to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five gives us a little bit of a glimpse into who, who Moses is in our faith, uh, in the, the pictures or the, the idea, not just the, the imagery of our faith when we're looking at what Moses represents. So in Romans chapter five, starting in verse 12, it says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense for by for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of, by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a long passage for us to read in looking at the life of Moses, but I think it's important to think of two things. From Adam until Moses, death reigned. Even though there was still no spoken law, there was still already the guilt that was there. It was still death was reigning, and Later, we get the law of Moses and we see exactly how the law can bring death into someone's life. But at this point, we already have death in the world. And so Moses is an illustration of what's happening in the, in the overall arcing picture here. From the time Moses was born until the time that he killed the Egyptian, there was something not right about Moses' heart, but he didn't know it. But on the day that he killed the man, trying to do the right thing, on that day, suddenly something else awokened and the next day he is fully aware of the law and he has broken the law on several levels. And so Moses is suddenly very aware of what is wrong and now he's fleeing and he spends the next season of his life in the wilderness. And so if you look at Israel, they are, you know, here come the people, the chosen people of God. There is no written law and yet they are being brought to this point. And when the law is finally administered, they suddenly see this is how we're wrong. Now, just knowing that we're wrong is still not enough because Moses leaves and goes out to Midian and he's out in Midian for a long time. And he's taking care of the sheep over there. He is now aware, finally, that there's something wrong within. And this was important for Moses because if he could have come with humility, you know, who, there's so many what ifs in the branches of our, of our life accounts. And so when we look at something like this, we say, well, what would have happened if Moses would have truly loved the Lord his God when he was a little boy? Would Pharaoh's daughter have come to Christ? Would Pharaoh himself have come to laud the name of this God of Moses. Like, would this have happened? Because you see later, uh, uh, Naaman the leper, he had, a, he had a little servant girl that he brought from the Hebrews. And that one little servant girl brought faith to a whole bunch of people, to Naaman's household. And so you see the potential for, a, for, a, for an account to go wildly different from what we read. 
But this is what happened, and we're looking at it, and God is using this not only to deliver Israel out of Egypt, but he's using it to show us something that we need to understand in our faith. So we have Moses fleeing to Midian. He's aware now that he's in trouble, he's broken the law, and he's not swaggering to Midian, he's running, he is afraid. And so as he's running to Midian, he arrives there, and he is an illustration right here that from the time he was born until the time he killed that man, death was already reigning in his heart. He didn't have an understanding of who God was or how he was to serve God. Death was already reigning, but he didn't know it. But now the law has showed up and he knows that he's in trouble. So now I wanted to look at the end of Moses' life for just a moment because I want to get this full picture here and it's still not full. Moses' life is very encompassing uh, there's so much to be learned in the, for the Christian faith looking at Moses' life. If you look at Deuteronomy, uh, and let's see, we're going to Deuteronomy chapter 32. That's the last chapter in Deuteronomy. Right before Joshua. So Deuteronomy, well, the last chapter is where we're going to end up. Deuteronomy 32 is where we're going to start, which is not the last chapter. Deuteronomy 32, in cha- uh, Deuteronomy 32 verse 48. And so what has happened right before this is Moses has blessed all the people. He has gone back over, reiterated everything God has done so far. And now we come to this moment and it says, then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day saying, go up this this mountain of the Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab across from Jericho, view the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession and die on the mountain, which you ascend and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zim, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there into the land which I'm giving to the children of Israel. Now let's go over to chapter 34. So Deuteronomy chapter 34, starting in verse 1. It says, then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the south and the plain of the Valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, so the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since, there has not, but since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land. And by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. There are several things I want to note. One is that when it's remembering the works of Moses, it doesn't remember the moment that he goes out and and slays this Egyptian. That it was not one of his mighty works or the things he did. It was something that happened before he was being obedient to the Lord. What is mentioned is the things that he did after the Lord had spoken to him. And so now we have Moses being recognized for all that he did, but he failed in one thing. And the thing that he failed in the most was this moment where in his anger and his frustration, he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. And this picture of striking the rock the first time is the picture of Jesus Christ, our rock. When, when, we, when he was put on the cross, he was stricken and he was wounded for his people. And when that happened, the blood flowed and salvation, redemption was completed. However, there was more. 
Because in the life of the believer, God didn't just want to deliver us from the wilderness of sin or from Egypt. He wanted us to bring us into the promised land. And so he said, when we come back to this rock, I want you to go and speak to the rock and out of the rock was gonna flow the waters. That water represents the rivers of living water that Jesus identified with later. And so from, from the time that Christ died on the cross until now, he said, Jesus specifically said, you haven't asked for anything in my name, but from here on out, I want you to ask for things in my name. And so when we speak to the rock, then this flows out to us. And this is an amazing thing when we stop and see that God had a picture, an image of our faith lined up and Moses in the, in the zeal of the moment and, and take, being so busy taking care of all this stuff, didn't realize that there was a bigger kingdom that was at stake, something else that God was doing. And so he struck the rock the second time. Well, Christ will not be struck the second time. When he returns, he will be riding on a horse and on his thigh will be written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's gonna be a completely different time. He's not coming to die again. He's not coming to be smitten again. And so when this picture that God had set up for Moses to illustrate, Moses was so focused on the earthly kingdom of what was happening with, with Israel right there in that moment that he didn't understand that there was a heavenly kingdom and that God was doing something bigger than what was happening right there. And this actually happens for us a lot. We will look around us in our faith. The things are so insurmountable around us. We will see these huge things happening and we will assume that this is the all-consuming, most important thing of our time and of our day. And we will, while it is a necessary battle to fight, while it is important for us to be doing something here, it is really important that we're aware that there's a kingdom that God is looking at and he is doing something that supersedes and is bigger than what we're doing. We look at the law of Moses. We look at the life of Moses. We say, this is an illustration of this heavenly kingdom. This is an illustration of my faith walk. I was in the world. I was in bondage to darkness. And one day I said, I'm out of here because I heard the good news and a messenger came. Moses is actually that messenger. He's an illustration of the messenger that comes and says, there's a better way. You don't have to stay in Egypt. So he's part of it. But what happens is he gets right up to the Jordan River. He walks us all the way through the wilderness. He takes us to this all there's this place and he stands right there on the very edge and Moses cannot go into the promised land. He is a picture of the law. The law will not take you into the promised land. The law will get you out of Egypt. The law will tell you that there's a problem. The law will tell you how all you have failed, but the law will, and the law will take you right to the very edge to Jordan and then there it stops. The law cannot take you into the promised land. Now, what's amazing about this is when Moses is living out his life, he is picturing for us the lawgiver who is Christ. He is picturing us to us the power of the word of God. And so he is picturing for us Christ, but he is an imperfect picture because it takes too many people, it takes a lot of people to, to illustrate all the facets of who Christ is and who, he, and who God is. And so one man, isn't enough. And so what happens now? Joshua becomes the next picture of Christ who takes us into the promised land. So in, in our faith experience, the lawgiver Christ shows us we're in Egypt and by the power of his spirit, he shows us the brokenness that is in the world and we, are, we, we want out. We're groaning under the bondage. And so as the lawgiver, he brings us through the wilderness and we eventually come here and we're stripped of ourselves. We're like, okay, I'm not doing it on my own. I'm not gonna go out there and just slay my Egyptian. I am going to, I'm literally gonna walk around Jericho and blow trumpets, okay. And so we obey to the letter what God is telling us and we come and we suddenly discover it's not about us, it's about Christ. And so he now goes from the picture of Moses to the picture of Joshua and Joshua shows us how to come into the promised land, and that is a huge part of our life, but just leaving Egypt is not the same as entering the promised land. And that is an important thing for me as a believer to fully understand. Just because I can tell you that I was in bondage in Egypt just because I was in a broken place, just because I was struggling over there, but I'm, and I walked away from it because I can now identify that this is a problem that doesn't put me 
into the promised land. And most of us who've left on a journey, we get it. You know, just because you get everything in the car finally, and that's a battle, and you get everyone in the car and you finally start driving, you have not yet arrived. There is still a journey left. There is still something left to be done. And then if you read the accounts, once you get to the promised land, you get where God wants us to be, the battle still isn't finished. And for us, on a human physical level, on the flesh level, we look at it and say, well, the battle will be over on that day when I see Christ face to face. And then we read the accounts of what the hints of what God is going to be doing throughout eternity. And we discover, well, my relationship with God doesn't end when I see him. My serving of the high king of heaven doesn't actually end when I finally see him. In many ways, perhaps that's where it begins. And so there is something beyond that is too big for us. And we don't fully understand what that is. And so there are multiple hints throughout scripture that show us that I mean, Jesus just, you know, just the idea that he wants us to be with him and to be doing something, that, that's powerful. We can't fully grasp what is on the other side. In the same way that when the children of Israel are working over their clay pots in Egypt, they don't even understand what could happen once they're over in the land of promise. They don't get it fully. But it takes Moses and Joshua to create this picture to get us there. Moses represents the law. The law itself doesn't get us into the promised land, but it lets us know that we shouldn't be in Egypt. It lets us know that Egypt is not the place for me. It lets me know that while I'm in the wilderness, I've got problems here and I've got to fight here and I shouldn't, this is not the place for me. It takes me right to the Jordan and says, that's where you should be. But the law itself didn't quite have the power to get me into the promised land. But what I love about Jesus Christ is that as the lawgiver and as the final judge, he is also the redeemer and the Messiah and he can get me into the promised land. And so the full picture of Christ it takes so many of these pieces for us. And so we piece it together and we actually have our theology and we divide all of our ideas into different pieces and sections. And we discuss this part and we discuss this part. And at the end of the day, all in all is Christ. It's Christ who redeems us. It's Christ who calls us out of darkness. It's Christ who brings us into the promised land. It's Christ who fills us of and, and cleanses us of all unrighteousness and fills us with himself. It's Christ. Joshua shows that half where Joshua brings us into the promised land. Both are pictures of Christ, the lawgiver, the Messiah, the anointed one. And so, like I said a moment ago, the concepts and character of God are too grand and expansive. It takes multiple humans to show the various pictures of all the facets of God. And this is easily seen when you look at the picture of marriage and you see how Christ is the head of the church and you see in the bride and you have all the different pieces and then you have, oh, we're also parents, we're also siblings, we're also sons, we're also, uh, so you have all the different relationships and every relationship, every human relationship that you can have shows one aspect of the relationship that we can have with God the Father. So it's, it's really amazing when you, when you start digging into this and realize that every one of us, not only do we have the image of God on us, we get to walk in the relationship that God is, is wanting to have with his people. So we get to be in the picture. We get to walk in the picture. With, with Moses' story arc, we have him starting, you know, he's, he's, he's born a lowly birth, but his life is spared. He's set apart. He's protected for a purpose in Pharaoh's house. And he understands that he is chosen. And then he acts in his own self. He fails. He has his wilderness experience. God calls, draws near. He's humbled. When he returns to Egypt, he is not the same Moses who left. Something has happened to Moses. And so as he is headed uh, into Egypt, it then happens that because he no longer expects that he can actually be doing something, suddenly he fulfills his life purpose. We have Israel's story arc. Here is Israel. It is the chosen, the chosen people of God. They are spared, sustained repeatedly. They're brought into Egypt to be protected for a purpose. 
And there's even a prophecy made about them and they're lost in Egypt. They need deliverance. And eventually a messenger comes. Their prophecy is restored. The calling is made clear and they know that they need to leave Egypt. They finally leave Egypt. And, and we breathe a sigh of relief when, when, when the Red Sea closes over Pharaoh. And we're like, okay, that chapter is finished. What we don't realize is that this next chapter is pretty big. There's at least, you know, there's a 40 year thing going on here. And so here is this chapter that opens. And so I wanted to look back just for a moment at this, at Moses. When he, when, when from Adam to Moses, death is reigning. And so from birth to adulthood, Moses had the sin, but he didn't know it. The sin nature, the, the, the potential for taking things in his own hand was there. But when, on the day that he killed the Egyptian, what he thought was the work of righteousness, it was flesh, it was sin. And what was, when that was revealed to them, him, he flees. He now knew better how repulsive his sin was. But on that second day, when the others came out to him, he thought they would see his sin that he had done and that they would understand and that they would actually applaud him for it. And this is such a strong picture of my flesh. My flesh says, Joseph, I know it's repulsive when so-and-so sins, but if you were to do it, the world would understand. In fact, they would say, you deserve this. And it's just better when you do this. And so my heart lies to myself and says, yeah, you know, I, and, but, but if I stop and say, okay, let's just take this very action and let's transfer it to someone else over here and let me see what I think about it. And I look at it and I say, that's repulsive. That's horrible. Why would he think he can do that? And yet when it's on myself, I think it's the right thing, it's the good thing. You know, God made me this way. And I don't understand how repulsive sin is. And that's where Moses was. He, he literally thought that he would be celebrated for killing the Egyptian. But even his brothers, the Hebrews, did not celebrate him. They said that was kind of dumb. Because, and even later when, Mo, when Moses comes back and is speaking to Pharaoh, the, Egyptian, the, the Hebrews come to Moses and say, look, I don't know what you're doing up there at Pharaoh's house, but it's not working. It's getting worse down here. You're not helping. And, and you know, in some ways they're saying it would be better if you would have stayed in Midian. Like every time you show up, you make trouble. And yet he has a calling. He's something he's supposed to be doing. But on that day, when he discovers how repulsive sin is and he runs to the wilderness, it isn't until he meets God that he understands that God's work must be done God's way. And he spends the rest of his life learning this, but still dies short of Canaan because he violated this idea that God's work must be done God's way. God was not primarily concerned about the children of Israel. When they were in the wilderness, he wasn't going, my biggest concern today, my, my primary concern, the thing I'm spending all of my resources on is how to get water for these people. That is the number one concern of heaven today. That was not his primary concern. He had something else he was doing. He said there, are, there is a kingdom that is being built that's eternal. And in the annals of the eternal kingdom, we are going to have the books that are written and these books are going to bring glory and honor and praise to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And there's as the people who come to from all the nations come and they understand what is happening in the annals of the history of the kingdom of heaven, they're going to see things. And as they see it, they will, they will be, they will have cause to worship the father because look at what he has built into the lives of, of his people. Look at how he answers the prayer. He doesn't just provide water. He provides a picture of living water. He provides a picture of the lawgiver become the Messiah. He, he shows this picture and it's so beautiful. And that's what I'm doing. And Moses looked at it and said, the primary concern God that we have today is that we got to get water for these people. They're murmuring and complaining and I'm sick of it and that he didn't have the eternal perspective to understand what God was doing. And so, as a result, 
we ourselves find ourselves in a position for, where from Adam to Moses, sin reigns, darkness reigns. And now we are at the point in the account where we're leaving Egypt. And this is not the Exodus yet. This is not quite the same as the, the image that we have when the children of Israel, have the, they do the Passover and they leave Egypt. It's not quite the same as that, but it is the other leaving because we have Moses leaving Egypt. And this is something that we don't always fully grasp when it's happening to us. You see, there is a time when we are in Egypt, this picture of the world, and we're eating at Pharaoh's daughter's table. We have everything we need. Everything is comfortable. Everything is fine. We think we've found our life calling. We're acting in it, and suddenly we are exiled, and we're sent into the wilderness, and nothing is provided for us anymore, and nothing is working the same way, and we're walking in a dark place, and it's a different world entirely. And for a while, because of what we meet there, so I, I'm just going to say suffering. So, so, for instance, you might be walking in a place in the world where you're, this is the, the image of the, the prodigal son, where he goes and he is eating, uh, he's, he's partying, he's doing well, but then he, he loses everything and now he's stuck over there. So whether the prodigal son is partying or whether he is stuck with the pigs or whether he has somehow found employment and is, is actually taking care of himself, none of those things matter. He is still in the far country. He still has not returned to the house of the father. And so no matter how good it is in Midian, how good Moses has it over in that far country, no matter how well he figures it out, that he has a family, he has children, it doesn't matter any of those things, he still has something that he needs to face that is in the world behind him. In Egypt behind him, there is still something that needs to be dealt with because Moses can spend the rest of his life in Midian, but he has not ever at that point achieved going to the promised land. And so we see Moses being this picture of our own flesh knowing the law, knowing everything that's right. And we come to that point and, and the picture, the image for us is we come to the cross of Jesus Christ and we die. And then we enter the promised land. We must die to ourself in Christ. What does it say in Romans? Is that when we are buried with, with Christ you know, in the baptism, we're buried with him. Why, what is that picturing? Well, it's that picture of Moses walking up, knowing all of these things, knowing that he needs to repent. And what happens? He dies. And then the children of Israel are able to go into the promised land. And Joshua takes on that mantle. It's a new man that leads us into the promised land. And so for you and I, old things pass away all things become new. But it's important that we recognize the problem of Egypt, that we recognize the problems of this world, that we recognize our own sin, our own sinfulness, the death that is reigning in us. We have to see that. But in the Church of America, there are many people who have recognized that. And they've quit that. They're not doing that stuff. But they have not actually entered into what it means to be a new creature in Christ. And so it's not enough for us to turn over a new leaf, to walk away from Egypt, to leave the world behind, to stop doing certain things. We have to be alive in the promised land. We have to cross over into the Jordan. And so there is a, a very real sense as we're looking at the entirety of Exodus, as we continue through the book of Exodus, that we will see the, the, the parallels between Moses' life and Israel's life and our spiritual life. But we will also see something that happens as we see what happens with the life of Joshua, the son of Nun. His story is so different from Moses' story. And yet, he represents part of who Christ is. Moses represents part of who Christ is. The two men knew each other and there was mutual respect there. And so it's, it's amazing to me to see how they're both walking in this. And we're going to go through the entirety of Moses, uh, of Exodus and see all of what Moses is doing. We will see the giving of the law. We'll see the people uh, being given that glimpse into the promised land and saying, I don't think I can actually do that. And God's saying, of course you can't. That wasn't the point. The point is, look what I can do. 
And so the law itself is robust and hardy. The law itself is strong and too much for us for that simple reason that we must look at the law and say, wow, this is impossible. And then the God of heaven says, of course it is. But look what you can do with a new nature. Look what you can do when the old man is dead and you enter the promised land. Today, if you go to Mount Nebo in Jordan, you will find a huge rock that's put in place. And it says Mount Nebo and has this, and, and, and there's also a Byzantine church there. And there are several other things that are around there. There's scripture verses up there. But at one point, there is this sign. Just, it's just set out like this. And it has arrows and it points. There's Jericho and it points to where all the things are that on a clear day, you can see the things that Moses saw from Mount Nebo as he looked across the Jordan River. And so it becomes a place of pilgrimage. You can go there and your faith can, you can say, wow, this is what Moses saw. He was here in Mount Nebo. But from a spiritual sense, I think it's important that we understand that when we are preaching the gospel, that we talk about the promised land, not only as heaven and what is coming one day, but we're talking about what is it that Christ intends for you to live in and walk in right now? What are the battles? There's enemies in the promised land. That seems a little bit anticlimactic or wrong or something. What's going on here? Why do we have to go back and fight this? But there's enemies there, but we go there not in our own strength. I mean, it talks about, God talks about sending his hornets in front of, of his armies. He talks about, and we have the, the picture of Gideon with his pictures and his light, and we have just these really strange war stories. How to win in the land of promise. And it has to do with the fact that when we come into the land of promise, it, we don't have to be good at slaying Egyptians. Because that doesn't actually get us anywhere. We need to be good at hearing the voice of the Lord and doing what he has asked us to do. And so leaving Egypt is not the same as entering the promised land. And when we go through, we can go through the entirety of Exodus and we're not actually going to end up in the promised land yet but we will learn much about ourselves and about our faith journey as we go through Exodus. And so hopefully as we stand here with Moses, as he dies on Mount Nebo uh, and is buried, we know not where. What's amazing about this picture is that Moses stands there. His eyes are still strong. He is still healthy in body. Physically, we look at him and say, there's no reason for him to die. And God says, there is no physical reason but these people of mine need to go into the promised land and he can't go. So it's time for him to come home. His work here is done. And I, I think about that, you know, when people try to go back and resurrect the old law and say, we should be following the law of Moses. We've got to be doing this. And we say, wait a minute, the law had its time. The law brought us right up to that point and said, there's the promised land. And who did we see? We see Jesus. And so Jesus fulfills the necessary parts of the law. He takes us into the promised land and somebody will come up and say, well, but what about, what about the law? It is still strong. It still has clear eyesight. Look at how well the law actually identifies some of the problems of humanity. And we say, yes, but the law brings us to Christ. And at that point, the law stops and Christ starts and there's a difference because now it's not us looking at the lists and the law and walking and trying to make it right. Now it is us dwelling as a vine, a branch in the vine. The, the fruit of the Holy Spirit flows into us. It's our new nature. We no longer have the old nature. We have a new nature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. And I'm telling you, in the body of Christ today, in America, we have a lot of people who are trying to stay with Moses. They would rather camp with Moses in Mount Nebo than go across the Jordan into the land of promise. And they will come and they will speak the words of the law. They will speak with intelligence. They will speak very clearly and they will try to, in multiple ways, keep you on this side of the Jordan and try to resurrect the old things. And we're missing the point. The high king of heaven came to earth and walked among us. And when he left, he said, I'm going to be the head of the church and you're the body. And if you've ever, 
I'm not a, whatever you call it, all the different things, the doctors and physi- not, every, the physiology and everything, the way our head interacts with our, the rest of our body is absolutely phenomenal. Anytime my head is trying to get my hand to do something or my feet to do something and it doesn't do it, we, call, we say we're sick, we're broken. And that's the case with the body of Christ that I, I just think that many of us say, well, look, I'm not in Egypt, but we're also not submitted to the head. And that's the important part. And when we are submitted to the head, then we can thrive. The rest of our physical body will function fully because we're submitted to the head. And so that's what we really are needing. We don't want to stop short. We don't want to get stuck in one place. And what's amazing to me is that Moses, who is the lawgiver himself, breaks the law. He can't keep the word of God completely. He keeps falling short. I mean, he is the one who talks about murder in the Ten Commandments. And yet look what he did to the Egyptian with no actual legal authority to do that. And so we have Moses, he has these problems and yet he, he shows us the law. And so let's not just leave Egypt, but let's leave it. We need to leave it. Let's not just walk away from Egypt. And then in the weeks to come, we'll be looking at something that some of the things that happened in the wilderness. We see how amazing it is that God reaches out to us when we're stuck in Egypt and convinces us that we can follow and how miraculous it is that we actually get out of Egypt. And then we see the time we spend in the wilderness and eventually we come to Mount Nebo and Moses dies and Joshua arises. Old things pass away. All things become new. We leave Egypt and we don't just leave, but we enter the promised land. Leaving Egypt is not the same as entering the promised land. This is something that I myself have taken this week and I've just been considering all the ways that I believe God has called me and has spoken to me in the past and I understand that there is, there is so much more that God is wanting to do with each of us. Because when we get to the promised land here on earth while we're in this newness of life in Christ as old things passed away, there's still battles to be fought, there's still land to be explored, there's still mountains to be climbed, there's still uh, new cities to be built up, there's so much to be done for the kingdom and we can be doing it where we can get stuck circling in the wilderness over and over and over again. So I feel like much of what I share today are just the themes that are gonna keep showing up in the next couple months as we go through the rest of Exodus. But it's good for us to think on these themes because they're part of a greater something that God is doing. And right now, as I'm looking at the world around me, I feel like I can be in that case where Moses was and I can start thinking that this battle is the most important one and forget that he's doing something in the heavenlies. He's at work and I must hear him because he's doing something. And if I obey him, it might not make sense here necessarily, but it makes sense there. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you that you have an eternal kingdom and that when you interact with earthly kingdoms, you are showing us little glimpses into how, what the secrets are of your heavenly kingdom, your eternal kingdom. Lord, thank you that while we're in bondage, that you come to us and you deliver us. Lord, you take on the pharaohs in our life and you don't allow us to just continue in bondage forever, but you draw us out. And Lord, you lead us. But Father, we, we don't want to just leave Egypt. We want to enter the promised land. We don't just want to spend the rest of our life dying to ourselves. We want to spend the rest of our lives here on earth being alive in you alive to you, Lord. So Lord, I pray for each of us and pray that you would help us to walk with you in this way. Let your name be glorified in our lives. Let your name be exalted and let the work of our hands and the words of our mouth be pleasing in your sight, Lord, but also let them be part of that eternal kingdom that you're building and not just the immediate need that we see here in the flesh. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.